And if you would take out your copies of God's word with me this morning and turn to Luke chapter 19. Luke chapter 19. We're going to be in verses 28 through 48 today. So taking a rather large chunk of scripture. I think it's important to deal with all of these things together in order to get a sense of what's really going on here. So, In Luke chapter 19, starting in verse 28, listen carefully now, because this is the word of God to you, Norwood. This is Jesus speaking right after he has just told the parable of the Minas, which we covered last week. And when he, that is Jesus, said these things, he went on ahead, going up to Jerusalem. When he drew near to Bethpage and Bethany at the mount that is called Olivet, he sent two of the disciples, saying, Go into the village in front of you, where on entering you will find a colt tied, on which no one has ever yet sat. Untie it and bring it here. If anyone asks you, Why are you untying it? You shall say this, The Lord has need of it. So those who were sent went away and found it just as he told them. And as they were untying the colt, its owner said to them, Why are you untying the colt? And they said, The Lord has need of it. And they brought it to Jesus. And throwing their cloaks on the colt, they set Jesus on it. And as he rode along, they spread their cloaks on the road. And as he was drawing near, already on the way down the Mount of Olives, the whole multitude of his disciples began to rejoice and praise God with a loud voice for all the mighty works that they had seen, saying, Blessed is the King who comes in the name of the Lord. Peace in heaven and glory in the highest. And some of the Pharisees in the crowd said to him, Teacher, rebuke your disciples. He answered, I tell you, if these were silent, the very stones would cry out. And when he drew near and saw the city, he wept over it, saying, Would that you, even you, had known on this day the things that make for peace. But now they're hidden from your eyes. For the days will come upon you when your enemies will set up a barricade around you and surround you and hem you in on every side. And tear you down to the ground, you and your children within you. And they will not leave one stone upon another in you, because you did not know the time of your visitation. And he entered the temple and began to drive out those who sold, saying to them, It is written, My house shall be a house of prayer, but you have made it a den of robbers. And he was teaching daily in the temple. The chief priests and the scribes and the principal men of the people were seeking to destroy him, but they did not find anything they could do, for all the people were hanging on his words. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God for his word. Let's pray and ask for the Holy Spirit's illumination as we study this text this morning. Oh God, we pray that you would help us, as you have promised to through your Holy Spirit, to listen and be, importantly, be transformed by what we read here today. Ask that you would give us willing hearts and ready minds as we worship you in hearing your word. We ask all these things in Jesus' name. 
Amen. Amen. What does it mean to have authority? What do we mean when we use this word, authority? Well, we measure authority in terms of what someone is capable of doing. What is it that a person has an ability to do? Sometimes we use the word authority, meaning like someone is an authority on a subject, meaning that they've studied it very deeply. And when they say something about it, it's likely going to be correct because they've studied so deeply about it. Other times we use authority in terms of having control over something. Most of the time in the spheres of authority that we know of, they are very small and limited. An office manager has the authority over one small office. Yes, they can hire and fire at will, but they can't just walk into any company. They're stuck in this one area of authority. Or a teacher. They're able to dismiss students and send them to the principal's office, but they can only do that for their class. This authority is total for their class, but it's not expansive. And then there are realms of authority that are quite large and rather scary if you think about it like world leaders or presidents. Did you know that in the 50s and 60s, America had a plan to annihilate the USSR? It involved the dropping of 3,000 atomic bombs at once when the Kremlin was least expecting it. The expected death toll ranged somewhere in the realm of 200 to 400 million people. This was originally conceived at the end of World War II and was in place and ready to be deployed up until the mid-60s when this was pared back. It's terrifying sometimes when certain people possess authority. But yet as much power as the buttons to an atomic weapon might be, there is one who has a greater authority than one who rules over even policies like this. His name, of course, is Jesus. And that's what we're looking at today. And our two points, as we usually look at and know what you can see on your outline, they've been tucked into the bulletin. We are going to look at these two truths. Jesus is sovereign and gracious. Jesus is sovereign and gracious. And point number two is no one can stand in his way. Jesus is in full control of everything. And he is gracious. Now you might say, well, how does this square with what we talked about last week with the parable of the minas? We remember those servants that all were supposed to bring their money back to their king. And one of them refused to obey the king and refused to be ruled by them. So the king said, well, slaughter all my enemies before them. And we found out that that was, in fact, Jesus. How does this square with the idea that Jesus is full of authority and full of grace at the same time? Well, that's when we are going to look at this. And as we'll see, especially in the coming weeks, as we confessed earlier in our service, is that we are sinners. We don't deserve to have all of our rebellion forgiven. Jesus stands today ready and willing to completely forgive any and all of our sins, if we will but ask. Even though he has full authority and full right to not do so. So it makes him gracious. And we're going to see how he does this. How is this 
total control and graciousness displayed in our text that's in front of us. We'll actually be looking at the authority of Jesus for the next several weeks, actually. We could almost make a little mini-series within the series of Luke that we're looking at as he's going to teach in the temple. He's going to teach about very practical things like should we pay our taxes to matters of great importance like who is Jesus really? We'll be examining those things over these next couple of chapters. But for the moment... How does Jesus announce that he is in charge? Let's start. Verse 28. Jesus is coming into the temple. Now, this is the time of Passover. There's lots of pilgrims that are coming into the temple. Most everyone who is going to come into Jerusalem, which is rather small, if you've ever been there, the Jerusalem is about the size of Sanford University's campus. You could walk across it in a couple of minutes. It's not that big. So if you're going to have hundreds, thousands of people coming in to celebrate Passover, everyone's going to be walking shoulder to shoulder as they're going through these narrow corridors. Riding on a donkey is not what you do. It causes a traffic jam. Unless, of course, you want to make a point, which is what Jesus is going to do here. He's going to be fulfilling Zechariah 9.9, which we read earlier, of the king who's coming mounted on a donkey. But first... Jesus needs to acquire one. One of the commentators that I looked at who said displays the humility of Christ and how it really drives home the fact that Jesus didn't have a place to lay his head. If he was going to have a donkey, even though he was the one who created all these donkeys, he was going to need to borrow one because he doesn't have one for himself. And this displays really how Jesus chooses to use means and people. The people who owned this donkey, Jesus decided that he wanted to use their animal. He could have just gone, poof, here's donkey. Now let's go into Jerusalem. Could have done that. But he decides to use means anyway. And note the control that he has of all of these means as well. He knows exactly where that donkey is. He knows right which village it is, what post it's tied to, and the fact that the owners will be willing to let it go by just the one phrase from the disciples. Jesus is in full control of all of this and yet chooses to use the people around him. One of my favorite commentators, Philip Ryken, had actually applied this to us today. Do we look at our possessions and ask the question, does the Lord have need of this? What could I be doing with this? How could I be serving Christ with my possessions? At one level, it's true. The Lord owns the cattle on a thousand hills and doesn't need us. But at the same time, he chooses to use us. And what a blessing indeed that is. So anyway, we're moving quickly. The disciples bring back the donkey. They bring him back to Jesus and they set their cloaks onto the donkey for a makeshift saddle. Even if it's going to be a humble mode of transportation, even if a, a, a king doesn't ride bareback. They have a saddle that they make for him and set Jesus onto it. Now again, this is a really big statement that Jesus is making. And it's lost on us because we're not in this culture. But riding on a donkey was something of a Davidic tradition. When it was time for one of David's sons to become king, specifically Solomon, he rode on a donkey, David's donkey, as an evidence of that he was the next in line for the throne. 
But as things went along, the tradition changed. And that instead of kings riding into their thrones humble, full of grace, and riding on a donkey, they switched to the warhorse, mighty conqueror, sword-bearing king. Jesus goes back to the original, takes on the donkey as a man of peace. He's not coming in on a warhorse. He's coming in humble, mounted on a donkey, and is getting ready for his entry into Jerusalem. Well, the crowd goes crazy. Here comes Jesus riding in. And they are not missing what this means. Here they're beginning to lay their cloaks down on the street, which was a way of welcoming a king. In other passages, you, they'll, we have mention of palm branches that would have been laid down. It was a symbol of a messianic arrival. Luke doesn't include that because he's writing to a Gentile audience. So the, the Jewish flavor would be lost on them. But the people are quite clear as to what they're expecting. Look what they say in verse 38. It says, Blessed is the king who comes in the name of the Lord. Now the original thing that they're supposed to be quoting is from Psalm 118, verse 26. And what that says is, Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. There's no mention of king. But it was implied in that psalm. So the people state explicitly what they've been waiting for all along. Here comes the king, the Messiah, the one who is blessed and comes in the name of the Lord. Can you imagine what that must have felt like for the people? Here, a king that they've been waiting for for centuries. I mean, we feel excitement at a college football game, y'all. Ever been in that crowd? And a kid who's 19 years old takes a ball across a line and we go crazy. It's a touchdown that's not going to matter next week. But we lose our minds over this excitement. And here for them, this is, this is the ultimate. This is the Messiah. The one who's going to extend Israel's rule from sea to shining sea. Who's going to make it to where all conquerors are thrown off, including the Romans that they're currently dealing with at this moment. Plus, he is the first politician to actually follow through on universal basic income with bread and universal health care. Jesus got the full package. And they're quite excited. Here comes the Messiah. Now, notice Jesus does not deny what they're saying. Jesus doesn't say, whoa, whoa, guys, hold on a second. I mean, I'm not the Messiah. I'm just a teacher. No, Jesus doesn't stop them. Even when encouraged to stop them by the local Pharisees at the time, those noble sourpusses are constantly trying to rain on Jesus' parade. They don't see that he's the Messiah because he doesn't follow their rules. It's not part of their club. It's not been approved. So they say, teacher, try to bring down that role. Not Messiah, not king. Teacher, rebuke your disciples. Tell them they're wrong. They're not going to listen to us. And then the way that Jesus responds, we gloss over this one really quickly. But this is a ridiculous response that if anyone else other than Jesus said it, we would laugh at them rightly. What does Jesus say? In his response to the Pharisees, I tell you, if these were silent, the very stones would cry out. What? How does he get off saying something like that? Can you imagine if I said that? 
If these people don't compliment me on this sermon, the carpet itself will have its praise. You'd rightly have me committed. Because, but with Jesus, it's true. Because he owns all of creation. All of creation is already praising him. Look at Psalm 19. The heavens declare the glory of God and the sky above proclaims his handiwork. Day to day pours out speech and night to night reveals knowledge. There is no speech nor are there words whose voice is not heard. Creation's already crying out. And if the people stop, the rocks will just pick up where they left off and continue in their praise. Why? Because Jesus deserves it. Jesus is the one who is deserving of all praise. There is no way you can overdo it with praise to Jesus. With us, we can overdo it with congratulating ourselves. When 80,000 people go crazy because a 20-year-old passed a ball over a thing, it's just like at the end of the day, it's a ball. Like I didn't cure cancer. But with Jesus, there's no limit because he rules over all things and is gracious over all things. Guys, the rocks get it. How embarrassing is it when we don't? You know, we get embarrassed when we don't know something about the computer and our kids and grandkids have to show us how to get on the internet and get our email. And we feel embarrassed because we feel like it's something we should know because computers have been around for a while. But how much more embarrassing is it when we don't live like this is true? Jesus has all authority, but yet we want to live our own way. We want to say that we know better. And things literally, dumb as rocks, understand. Grasshoppers get it. We should. When we disobey God, we're saying this isn't true. Jesus is not the Messiah. Jesus is not the king. Or we try to make Jesus into someone else. A co-pilot, a life coach, a bank, a marriage counselor, but no more. A spare tire. You know, the Pharisees and the crowd are actually making the same mistake. The crowd is rightly praising Messiah, but for the wrong reason. The crowd is expecting a political figure who's going to finally kick the Romans out and let them live in peace. And that's all they want. They don't want someone to tell them how they should live. The Pharisees also want a Messiah, but they want a Messiah that says that they're right. Both of them look religious as they do it. One side is really excited and jumping up and down and making a lot of noise. And the other side is really cold and rules-based. Let the hearer understand. And either side doesn't want Jesus as their ruler of their heart. They missed him. And because they missed it, Jesus weeps over Jerusalem. Look what it says here in verse 41. And when he drew near and saw the city, he wept over it. The word wept or weep here would probably be better translated wailing. 
This is an extreme display of emotion, deep sobs over grief over this city. Why is Jesus doing this? Because the city, 40 years from the day that he's walking into it, is going to be destroyed. In fact, the Romans approached this city and wanted to destroy it so definitively that they would hope future generations would not believe it was at one time inhabited. This is how devastating they wanted this thing to be annihilated. In fact, one of the ruler, the Roman generals that was overseeing all of this, when he saw how destroyed the Jerusalem was, reportedly he threw up his hands and said, God, this is not my fault. So why? Why is Jerusalem going to be destroyed like this? It says at the end of this section, because they did not know the time of their visitation. They didn't see who Jesus was. They wanted Jesus as policymaker, as bread provider. Or they wanted Jesus as rule follower and people excluder. But Jesus wasn't those things. They failed to submit to him as Lord. They had the scriptures. They should have known what was coming. Jesus very explicitly preached all of this too. There's no excuse. So if Jerusalem, the city of David, where the temple was, was not spared, why do we think we would get away with that? Because we've got the rest of the story. We've got the rest of the book. We've seen the cross. We've seen the resurrection. And for us to think, ah, think we will escape any easier? We won't. But yet, see the graciousness of Jesus even in this passage. Yes, he knows the future for Jerusalem intimately. This is exactly what happens in Jerusalem later. The Romans will build a siege work and take down all the stones, just as Jesus said. But notice how gracious Jesus is. This city has done nothing but rebel against God since it was formed. Few decades of breaks here and there, but basically centuries of rebellion. And Jesus weeps over the fact that judgment has to come. How many of us give people one or two chances before we're done with them? And yet Jesus is gracious and weeps over the fact that this judgment has to come to his people. This is what Jesus is. This is our king, our Messiah, sovereign and gracious. But Jesus isn't done. We're going to now move into the cleansing of the temple. And just for those that might be concerned that it's been almost 25 minutes and I'm still on point one, point two will be dealt with much shorter, so don't panic. Still under point one, though, that Jesus is sovereign and gracious. We move into the temple. Now, Luke is compressing his narrative. The rest of the Gospels tell us that this happens the next day. But here, Jesus, Luke is in a hurry. He's wanting to cover as much detail, as as much of the story as he can, as as short as he can. And he's got verse 45. Here, Jesus enters the temple and begins to drive out those who sold. This must have been something. 
The rest of the Gospels paint us a deeper picture of it. When he's driving people out of the temple, this means flipping over tables, twisting a cord into a rope, and beating the people out of the temple. Why are we taking such a response to this? It's just worship, Jesus. Tells us where our priorities are. What is Jesus seeing when he comes to there? And why does he say what he says in verse 46? He says to them, it is written, my house shall be a house of prayer, but you have made it into a den of robbers. The commentators were very helpful in helping me unravel this passage. When Jesus says it is written, he's referring to the Old Testament. And the way he says that is says it is written and it still applies. It stands written would be another way to put it. It says, my house shall be a house of prayer. He's quoting from Isaiah 56 verse 7. And what the thrust of that passage is, and would that we had time to look at the whole thing, but the thrust of this passage in Isaiah 56, 7 is that the point of the temple was supposed to draw the outside world in to meet their God. Israel was supposed to form as like a priesthood that would attract the people to God and show even outsiders that they could know the God of Abraham, Jacob, and Isaac. And there was a special section of the temple that was set aside for outsiders. That they could come, even being Gentiles, even being people outside of the covenant, and know who God was. But where God had set aside a place for evangelism, the local people and priests at the time saw a place for profit. And what they did is the outside court that's supposed to be set aside for the nations to come and get to know their God, they filled it with thousands of animals. Because after all, people are coming a long way to sacrifice, and wouldn't it be convenient if we had some animals right outside? Also, their coinage is not quite right, so we can also provide this ATM service where we'll swap out their coins for them, and we can make a decent profit on the changeover. Josephus, at the time, critiqued the chief priest. Josephus was a historian alive at the time of Jesus and referred to the chief priest at the time as the great procurer of money. They had figured out how to turn God into a business enterprise. And America's no different. We've turned an entire industry into selling people Jesus and telling people that Jesus will be what they want him to be. So instead of being concerned for evangelism, they were profiteering, which is why he quotes the next phrase. He says, but you have made it a den of robbers. This one comes from Jeremiah 7, verse 11. Way back then, we can see things haven't changed for hundreds of years in Jerusalem. Jeremiah is standing at the gates because the people were oppressing those that were around them taking advantage of widows with no legal protection and trying to bilk as much of their fortune out as they could, tossing orphans to the side, all the while claiming how religious they were because they got to stand in the temple that day. And God says, this is not a storehouse of religious righteousness here. This is a den of robbers. This is a cave where all this sin is taking place. Don't look at the gold and think you're safe. I think you're being religious because there's a pew you're sitting in. 
So Jesus takes these two passages and combines them together to create this really stinging indictment of saying, it should have been about bringing people to me. It should have been about a place of prayer for the nations. But instead, you've made the worship of God a place for robbers. Phil Riken goes on to apply this devastatingly to us. Wince along with me. It says, the Bible says that your body is a temple of the Holy Spirit, where Jesus dwells by faith. Be sure to make that inner temple a house of prayer, lest it should become a den of robbers that steals money from the poor and worship from God. Our heart needs to be set aside for God, too. And when we take that place where we make all of our decisions for life and the ultimate things that drive us and make them into something other than God, we are deserving of this same indictment here. And that we don't get to be safe because we've got a cross draped around our neck or because we spend our weekends in a church building. But it's about submitting to the ruler here. Jesus cleanses this temple. And he can cleanse your temple too. He can drive out those things that are inside your heart. Because if you're sitting here thinking, oh man, he's exactly right. This is where my heart lies. Don't despair. Come to Jesus instead. Because he will, and he will take whatever it takes. He will flip over tables. He will twist a cord of, he will twist a whip inside to drive out whatever's in your heart. He'll deal with it. But you gotta come. Got to surrender. Surrender to this ruler. You can imagine, as Jesus is doing all this, I could imagine the chief priest asking, who does he think he is? You imagine someone coming in here and just like ripping lights off of the wall and overturning our live stream computer and saying that this is a den of robbers? We'd say, who are you? But as we will see over these next several weeks exactly who he is, God can determine how he's worshipped. And that's who Jesus is. We aren't amazed by that enough, if I can follow this little rabbit trail for a second. God came down in human flesh and perfectly represented himself in ways that we could understand. And he did that for us. Not just serving as an example of this is what you should do, but taking it all the way and dying for us. We're sinners. We deserve to be punished. We need a substitute because the punishment is for all of eternity. So we need an eternal substitute too. And that's who Jesus was and is. He still maintains his human body in heaven. And still continues to pray for us and intercedes for us. He is a sovereign and gracious ruler who, as far as we can see from this passage, who can rule over worship and rule over our hearts. And over the next several weeks, we'll find out all the other things that he rules over. But for the moment, as we go into point two, again, quickly. No one.
can stand in Jesus' way. What it says, verse 47. Teaching daily in the temple. The chief priests and the scribes and the principal men of the people were seeking to destroy him. They know exactly where Jesus is. They've got the syllabus. Monday, Wednesday, Friday, right there in the temple. Teaching. They could have taken him whenever they wanted to. And they really wanted to. But they couldn't. Because the people were in the way. Chief priests, scribes, principal men of the city. None could stop him. Religious authority, political authority, doesn't matter. No one can stop Jesus until Jesus is ready. When Jesus went to the cross, it wasn't a political misstep. It wasn't that Rome saw him as a threat and decided to take him out. Wandering teacher was no threat to Rome. When Jesus went to the cross, it was by his choice. Even when he died, it wasn't the spear or the nails. He said, Father, into your hands I commit my spirit. He's the one who let his life down. No one can stand in Jesus' way. Not here and not today. So what's our takeaway? You have no reason to fear man or government or even your own sin. Jesus is more powerful than all of those things. Jesus controls governments, and he can control your heart. Don't think that you can out him. I heard a pastor, Dane Ortland, on a podcast this week that we can get so discouraged in our sin that we can't possibly be forgiven. And he says, do you think you can out God? That you would one day be able to say, I defeated the Holy Spirit. Because I was just too sinful. No. You can't beat this. No amount of, even if we were to take America's plan for Russia and apply it to Jesus, it wouldn't work. All the atomic bombs in the world can't stop Jesus. Couldn't stop him then, not going to stop him now. No matter what else we think of in our human pride. Jesus cannot be stopped. And no one else, nothing else, will satisfy you like Jesus will. Because he is gracious. Not only is Jesus more powerful than you or anything else in this world, he's also more gracious than you, anyone else in this world. And that he will forgive you no matter what it is that you've done. You can afford to be honest with your life because Jesus is stronger than your sin. He's stronger than a 30-year pattern. Whatever it is that you can come up with to say to Jesus, well, I don't know, man. No, Jesus is more powerful. He's sovereign and he's gracious. So run to this king. Run to the king who rode in on a humble donkey, climbed onto a rugged cross, descended into death and walked out of the grave and ascended to a heavenly throne where he sits and rules right now. Submit to him today. And you will not find a tyrannical ruler. You will not find a father with his arms crossed at you, just wondering when you're going to get your act together. But instead, he is going to be a gracious Lord who delights over his people, lavishing his mercy on you. How do you do that? 
How do you submit to this king? Turn away from your sin, your old master. The word we use for that is repentance. And if you're going to turn from something, you've got to turn to something, and you turn to Christ, your new master, and putting your full trust in him. If you need help doing that, nothing would thrill me more than to introduce you to this king as I and as every other Christian here is an ambassador for him, can tell you how you can find your sins to be forgiven, that you can be with this king who loves you so much. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you so much for your gracious rulership over this world. We don't deserve to have such a good king. But you've come to us anyway. So Lord, I ask that you would help us to see who you are. That we would not be chasing after false messiahs. Chasing after things that cannot satisfy. Things that cannot protect. Things that do not love us. I pray that you would help us to submit to you more and more each day and that we would find you to be, as you've always have been, a sovereign and gracious king. I ask all these things in Jesus' name, amen.